everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show today. I'm really glad you're here. Right now, we're in the middle of a series called For the Love of Good Change, and I am loving it. Guys, I can't, as I've been on interviews with all of our guests in this series, I'm trying to remember a time when my brain has just been buzzing so much. I've just taken in so much good counsel and good leadership and wisdom and um, just helpful guidance, and not in the old traditional way of like fix your dumb life, <laughs> but more just a lot of self-compassion and awareness and, and these healthy sort of integrated ways of living. I'm actually not into new year, new you. I don't like that. And I hope you don't hear that um, in this particular series. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to change everything about ourselves in order to finally be happy. I don't like that mindset at all. This is supposed to be sort of the opposite of that approach, this series. And so I think we can be mindful and look at changes that don't overwhelm us or seem unattainable or make us feel guilty or invite comparison, but rather sort of gently lead us into these amazing people that we are created to be, who we already are, frankly, in relationships that we are in and the life that we are living. And as it relates to today's guest in the bodies that we are living in. So today we are going to hold space for what might be for many of us maybe a hard conversation. We are going to talk about how we see ourselves, specifically our bodies and how that affects us and also how it affects our daughters and our kids. Um, And so I just, I want you to stick with me. Don't switch off here um, because this isn't what you might be thinking. This is not New year, lose 20 pounds, like every single commercial we are seeing right now. This is the most opposite conversation. I cannot wait for you to hear it. I am telling you, you're going to get to the end of this hour and be so happy that you listened to this conversation, that you stayed in this because it is so encouraging and so nurturing and and nourishing because the truth is you are worthy of love, just like you are right this minute. You, your whole self, your body, your brain, your soul, all of you is worthy to be loved by your partner, by your family, by your own self, by God. So if that's hard for you to admit, I completely get it. And so today my guest and I are going to talk about what we can do to get our arms around this and truly embrace this idea. So my guest today is phenomenal, the very wonderful Hillary McBride. Um, A lot of you know Hillary already. She's a therapist. She's a researcher, a speaker, a writer in Vancouver. And she is incredibly gifted at helping people to grow and heal and really just come more fully into themselves and their relationships. She's a um, registered clinical counselor, PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia. And she has this real compulsion to make psychology and academic research very accessible to us normal people. Um, and so to that end, you can hear Hillary on two podcasts. She's on two. First, Hillary is the host of the CBC podcast, Other People's Problems, where she shares taped conversations 
with a few of her brave patients in her therapy practice with their obvious permission. Um, And then she's also the co-host of one of my absolute favorite podcasts in the entire world, the Liturgists podcast, which is this culture shaping conversation around the most relevant topics facing people today. I, it's just so good. Both of these are phenomenal podcasts and so worth your time. I was actually on the Liturgist podcast just a while back, loved every minute of it, love those people, love that community. Um, so here's why I wanted to have Hillary on the show today. She's written a very powerful book called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves the Way We Are, right? That's it. This is not a gimmick. This is not a bait and switch, you guys. This is not a shame-filled book. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It's the celebration of womanhood and the power of legacy. And according to Hillary, we may inherit, we absolutely do inherit some really harmful messages about our bodies. Um, And then we can accidentally pass them on to our daughters without even knowing it. But they do not have to be the end-all, be-all of our existence. It is possible to change the way we see ourselves and raise daughters who can love themselves too. Listen, this is just one of the most wonderful conversations I've been engaged in in a long time. I um, just, my heart feels so full having, having finished it. I'm glad that you are here. I think it's going to give you a lot of hope. Um, and so I am so pleased to share my conversation with Hillary McBride. Okay, finally. <laughs> Hillary, <laughs> welcome to the For the Love podcast. Seriously. Mm-hmm. I'm we were so just saying, happy to be with you, Jen. We were just saying, why is it taking so long? Why? <laughs> I want an answer. We've just had, we have so much delightful crossover in our communities yeah. and um, known about you and your work for so long. And I just love it. And I love you from afar. And I'm so happy to talk to you voice to voice. Oh, thanks so much, Jen. Likewise. Feel the same way. Um, I really um, love what you're putting out into the world right now, and mm-hmm. I cannot think of a a better conversation to put in front of my um, podcast mm-hmm. community right now. So I've I've told them a little bit about you and what you do, but I wonder, um, in your own words, if yeah. you could tell us a little bit more about your work. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you do what you do? And why have you chosen to kind of sit in hard places with people and guide them through it? Mm -hmm. It's the greatest honor, truly. It is the greatest honor because a lot of times our pain is is something that we carry in such isolation. We feel like we have to tuck it away to be acceptable to the world. And and that means that we continue feeling alone and like we're broken and like we can never see ourselves as we truly are. I believe that community and relationship reflects back to us the truth about ourselves that sometimes we can't see when we're in dark spaces. And so I, I feel like there is this tremendous calling on my life that I don't take lightly to go into the hard spaces to help undo people's aloneness, to help us not carry so much shame about the pain that is actually just part of being human. And I'd like to say that that um, is purely altruistic. I don't know. I don't know if anything can be, but I, I, I feel alive when I do that in part because I needed people to do that for me in my own life. For a, a long time, mental health issues were a big part of my my identity. I was in and out of treatment for an eating disorder for well over a decade. And at various points, that included 
um, OCD and anxiety disorders and depression and suicidality. And I had lots of people sit across from me who saw me as an illness, who saw me as a diagnostic label. And then I finally had this therapist who, who we actually didn't even talk about pathology for a long time. We just talked about what it meant to be human and kind of existentialism and, and suffering and pain. And I felt seen. And that was the thing that woke me up. It was like, oh, there's more to me than just these labels that everyone has put on me. There's more to me than just if my weight is, you know, what the doctors want it to be. And, and that made me come alive again. And so I get the pleasure now of sitting in spaces and helping people see themselves as more than just the suffering, but also knowing that, that they don't have to make the suffering go away to be loved and to be seen and to be valued. That is so gorgeous. Um, Thank you. Since this is a, a topic we could talk about for practically forever, um, <laughs> I'd really love to just jump right in to yes. your book, Mothers, Daughters, yeah. and Body Image. Um, this just, I mean, I don't have to tell you how much this matters right now and oh, how yeah. deeply the community of women struggle here. And yeah. I mean, I literally hear this every day. Yeah, if I had to I just boil down the amount of um, sorrow and conversation that I take in for my community, this is up at the top all the time. Right. So yeah. in a nutshell, can you just tell us what's the book about? Why'd you decide to yeah. write it and make this a part of your clinical focus? Yeah. So I, I want to start by echoing that we could talk about it forever. Like truly, yeah. I'm, this is one of my areas of academic specialty. So literally for like years, I've been mm. talking about this in academic yep. space. And so truly like this conversation could go on without yep. end for, for a long time, but I'll try and keep it brief. Um, in, in the post post-recovery phase of my eating disorder and going back to grad school and starting my journey of becoming a therapist and academic, I, I was doing some work in researching body image. And it seemed like there was so much that we understood about pathology. We understood about why, why do women hate their bodies? Ah, oh, what, you know, why is it that this is happening and how does it get that way? We understand that now we've put a lot of research and energy right. into that, but we don't understand what happens when women don't hate their bodies. Mm. Like, how does that happen? What's going on wow. there? And there's actually some pretty terrifying statistics that show us that in North America, Across the lifespan, the the percentage of women who hate their bodies or are extremely dissatisfied with their bodies is between 85 and 95%, like truly wow. a shocking number, wow. which would say to us that if you don't hate your body, you're actually hmm. in the minority. By far. By far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in that, in that process, I thought, oh gosh, like this, this can't, this can't be this way forever. We got to do something about this, but what, what do we, what do we know about when women love their bodies and how do they get there? And so I decided to research that in part because I'm, I'm really interested in changing the social discourse around women's mm -hmm. bodies, but also because I have a terrifying fear. It's just, it grips me so viscerally mm -hmm. that I'll have a daughter one day who hates her body the way that wow. I hated mine. Yeah. So this is very, very personal, but also um, sociological and psychological and about totally. this cultural landscape that we're in. And in doing this research, I put 
I put the question out to um, to recruit participants. So when we're doing research, um, we recruit participants and we're trying to do that in an ethical way. And, you know, so put up these posters and put things out on the Internet and said, do you like do you love your body? Have you never had an eating disorder? Who like are you out there? I need to talk to right. you if you're out there. Like, please. Right. And I kept making this joke to my supervisor and to people that I would come across. Like, I don't think I'm going to find anyone. They're not out there. And what was amazing in this, Jen, this almost never happens in research. I had an overwhelming response of people within the first 24 hours, Mm. just jumping at the gate to try to participate in this study. And I thought, wait a second, this doesn't fit the bill. Like, yeah, the statistics tell us that more, most women hate their bodies. So what's going on? Where are all these women coming from? And what was interesting, and this is kind of like a, it's a subversive script, but the women were saying, I've been desperate to find a place where I could talk about how okay I am with my body, but because of how much other women hate their bodies, if I tell the truth about my ability to love my body, then mm. I get excluded from social conversations. Wow. I get told I'm not allowed because I don't understand. I, wow. you know, some of these women are saying like, I have been shut out from communities mm. because people will say the thing that bonds us is our body hatred. And well, so, yeah. Right. And so here's this interesting paradox is that we see that the majority of women in North America are dissatisfied with their bodies and the rates are rising and it's becoming earlier and earlier that this takes place and it's growing later and later into the lifespan. And yet we have this growing community of women who have an alternative narrative, but don't feel allowed to tell their stories. Wow. And so as they're not allowed to tell their stories, we don't even understand how they got that way. Because hating our bodies has become such a central part of connecting to other women, right? Think about how many women are like, oh, you think your body's bad? Like you should see my thighs or you should see, right? I'm going to cut myself down Mm. to make you feel better. And in that way, we're going to bond with each other. And I'm going to feel better about myself because yeah. I'm, you feel better about yourself. But yeah. the whole currency is body hatred. It is. It's an easy trope. And I'm sitting here listening to you talk thinking, I have reached for this a hundred times. It's easy. In my community online, which is almost entirely women, it's an easy jab. It's an easy punchline. Um, it's easy. It's easy self-deprecation. However true I feel like it is, nonetheless, it creates community around the same ideas. It's so easy. And frankly, as you're saying it, I'm trying to, I'm trying to conjure up who I have seen offer a counter narrative, and it's small. That's right. It's a small group. Yep. Yeah. And if you think about the the dialogue and the discourse that we engage in as women, if I sat you down or not you necessarily, but if two women sat down and one woman said to the other woman, oh, I just love my body. I'm so proud of her. Look at all of the ways that we, I take care of myself and right. Like, where does that conversation go? There are crickets. We don't know how to have that conversation. Yeah. But if a woman sat down with another woman and was like, oh, I'm just oh, I just can't, I can't buy any clothes. I feel so crappy. And you know, I'm going on this Mexican vacation and I can't find a bathing suit. We know exactly how to jump in with like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. And the conversation carries itself. So it seems that there is this piece about body hatred that's woven into the fabric of being a woman, both as an individual and collectively, but it's keeping us stuck in a discourse that doesn't tell the full story. 
that there is more to who we are than, than just body hatred, than just our bodies being bad and kind of betraying us. I'm using mm. heavy duty air quotes as I say that. Right. So all of this to say, in addition to my fear of like having a daughter who would hate her body one day, the way that I did, plus this idea that wow, there can be a different way, but we just don't have enough information about it. Mm. I did my master's research on this topic and looked at young women who love their bodies as they are. And then I did a secondary piece of analysis where I asked their mothers, what Mm. did you have to do with that? And I looked at a kind of intergenerational piece where I'm interviewing these two women, a mother and a daughter, an adult adult woman and her adult mother. Mm -hmm. And each of them talking about their own bodies to look at how messages are passed intergenerationally between mothers and daughters and how, how there can be strength and courage and pain in those stories. Um, and then as part of feminist research, there are a bunch of different kinds of academic research. And a lot of times research sits in the ivory tower. It sits far away from the general population, and it's written in language that is totally inaccessible. So great. We have this great cure for this disease, but nobody can access it because it's held within this hierarchy of knowers and not knowers. Mm -hmm. And so as a feminist academic, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is making research accessible to people that could change their lives. And so decided to write a book about this as a way of making kind of available to the average population who doesn't want to read research articles written in academic journals. Like, how do we change our relationships with our bodies? Mm. So this is, this is both kind of an academic, um, an academic and rigorous empirical study, but it is also, I believe, a political act to in insert into the story of women's relationships with their bodies, a counter narrative to say there is a different way, but if we don't even believe another way is possible, Hmm. how are we going to begin to create it? So this begins the discourse that I am, I'm riding on the coattails of many women who have come before me as well, but to say, we don't have to keep feeling this way about our bodies. There is so more to us. That's so great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, that mother daughter, Mm -hmm. um, connection. It's interesting. And what you've discovered is that parents do plenty of things, right? Even moms who have struggled with their own, um, self-esteem and body image can still pass down healthy perspectives and behaviors to their, to their daughters. It's possible because I don't want anyone to hear you talking right now and think, Oh, it's too late. I, I hate my body too much. And what am I going to do with this kid of mine? Um, you've actually coined a term called choosing the ladder that I think is really helpful. Could you talk about that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I'm just so glad that you brought this up because most of the, most of the things that we hear about parents are mother blaming. So if a kid is struggling with something automatically, our thought is mom is bad. Totally. And what we forget about is, is how mothers are often the gatekeepers of health, that their mothers are the ones who are investing so much care and nurturance and attunement into children. And, and so choosing the latter is really just this way of saying, um, something that one of the participants in my study said, I want my ceiling to be your floor. 
Hmm. I want the extent of growth that I can get to, to be the place that I launched you from so that you don't have to do the work that I did to fight tooth and nail for my freedom, that I can stand in my freedom and propel you into your own freedom. And part of that means acknowledging your mistakes that's a big part of changing the story. So I don't actually believe that there's a version of a perfect parent. I think right. that a good enough parent, a parent who uh-huh. is uh, giving everything that they can to their, their children is a parent who, who, who notices their mistakes and takes responsibility uh-huh. for it. Because what you're doing is you're saying to your kids, when you grow up, you're going to make mistakes. And here is a model of how you take responsibility for that. So for all the parents who are listening, it's okay that you hurt your kids. Every parent hurts their kids. Totally. I mean, abuse is an exception, right? Like that's something right. I want to distinguish from, you know, the, the normal parental mistakes that people make. But the idea is that there is no perfect parent. There is you being fully human in a way that supports your children to become adults who are fully human, which means saying, oops, yep. I messed up. And here's how I take responsibility for that. So that's mm. one part of change of taking the ladder or kind of um, choosing the ladder. It's saying like, I'm going to give you this gift to model for you what it means to take responsibility for mistakes. That in, in part of that is acknowledging where your woundedness is as a parent. So one of the things that I saw in this, in the, my research and in the study was that moms who had anxiety would go the extra mile to say, to their kids. So you might have anxiety one day. And if you do, that's totally okay. And here's what I want for you to do about it. So instead of like, I'm going to shove down all Mm. of my pain so that you think that I'm perfect. And you have this experience of me as being Mm. um, impenetrable or whatever, giving this model of a human and demonstrating vulnerability and authenticity and supporting them to reach out for help by saying, here's how you ask for help and you can ask me. And if you ever feel anxious to continue on with that example, if you ever feel anxious, come talk to me and I'll teach you how to breathe together and we'll go get you therapy. And if you need medication, we'll get you medication and you never have to feel shame about asking for help for the ways that you struggle in life. Mm. And in doing so, instead of pretending that there was no anxiety struggle, they supported their kids to have an open dialogue if that would come up. Because Mm. as I was saying at the beginning of this interview, so much of our pain we carry in isolation and we wound ourselves even more because of the shame we carry for how we struggle. And if we can undo the shame about our struggle, then we can get right on to healing our pain. That's great. I love it. Um, One of the most inspiring Mm. mother-daughter relationships that you highlight in the book is between Anne and her daughter, Kelsey. And you say that Anne grew up with a mother who just didn't know how to equip her daughter with positive and tangible ways to love herself. But even though Anne was not giving those tools, given those tools, and even though she actually did feel shame about her own body, she was able to not pass along that sort of toxic thinking along Mm -hmm. to her daughter. And in fact, Mm -hmm. Kelsey in a reversal was actually able to help her mom, which is so, so hopeful and so beautiful. Could you talk about that just a little bit about that relationship? I just love that story. These two beautiful, beautiful women. I truly mean that like inside Mm -hmm. and out. One of the things that her 
her mother gave her, one of the things that Anne gave Kelsey was the freedom to think for herself Mm -hmm. and an incredible gift, because that means that whatever comes your way as a human being, if you believe that you can trust your body and your instincts to know if that is true about you or not, even though the message coming at you is not helpful, but you can think for yourself, then you can see the lies in that message instead of having to go along with that message to curate some sort of belonging. Because for a lot of us, we experience this like, um, I have to be like you right. in order for you to approve of me. Yep. And what Kelsey knew is that she was unconditionally loved and that she was free to be herself, even if she was different than her parents. One of the things in her story that's really unique that I don't actually talk about in the book or in the interviews is one of the times where Kelsey felt pressure to be a part of a sports team. And she Mm. went to her parents and said, I know you really want this for me. And you've been really pushing for this. And you have made lots of sacrifices for me to be in this sport up until this point. I don't want this for me anymore. I think Mm. that you want this for me, but I don't want this for me. And her mom said, absolutely. Like you are free to say no to this and thank you for telling us. And I'm so sorry you felt the pressure. And so again, there is the kind of owning, owning, um, not necessarily a mistake, but owning her role or the pressure Mm -hmm. she put on her and, and saying, When you give me that feedback, Kelsey, when you tell me that something isn't working, I can hold that and not silence you to manage my discomfort and not make you comply with my expectations so that I feel okay about myself. So there really was this beautiful freedom for her to think for herself and for her to act and use her voice. Like voice is a really important construct when we think about feminist psychology and women's ability to, to, to know what they know to honor what they know and to actually speak it out loud to the people that they love. And in, in, in the relationship between Anne and Kelsey, Kelsey never had to lose her voice to create belonging with her mother. What a wonderful example. Um, I really appreciate all this dialed in work that you do between moms and daughters. That's just so many of us. And we are both daughters and mothers. And exactly. that just there's yeah. just no way for me not to relate to that. Yeah. But I also <laughs> like how um, in the book, you, you talk about how a woman's relationship with her body can yeah. mirror the kind of love and acceptance she has of her partner. And mm-hmm. so I appreciate that angle too. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and um, it sort of expl- it's really a great way to understand how we can learn to have compassion for ourselves. So if you think about the thing that so many, I hear so many women say, I mean, I was leading a women's retreat this weekend and I heard women's, women say over and over and over again, I would never judge you the way Mm. that I judge me, that we somehow can see the goodness and the beauty and the Imago Dei in the other. (laughs) But somehow we've come up with all of these reasons why we are exempt from that very thing for ourselves. So there's that piece of it, which is like, what would happen if I could see myself the way that I see others? Like if we do not walk through the world 
judging every other woman's body, then why do we do that to ourselves? Great question. But perhaps the curiosity then is too, if we do walk through the world judging other women's bodies and say, oh, she shouldn't be in that bikini or like, oh, that, you know, some women just shouldn't wear certain kinds of clothes. How do we ever expect to feel safe within ourselves? We are just practicing judgment that is going to fuel back into our self-discourse. And so truly there has to be this kind of, um, this parallel process where we treat ourselves like we treat others. It's my favorite spin on the golden rule. Yes, exactly. Um, like I, I must love myself. Like I love you. Good. <laughs> and a lot of times we, we flip it the other way and we say like, sure. Oh, you know, like uh, do unto others as you would have them to do uh-huh. unto you. But there is a beautiful thing. If we reverse that, if they're both equal, hmm. then all of the goodness that I believe for others, all of the healing that I fight for and the redemption and the advocacy and the justice and the compassion that I fight for, for others, where did I get the story that I am not deserving of that That's as well? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so really that, good leadership. So there's that little piece of it. But then the other thing is that we often talk about our bodies as an it. Hmm. And this is where we get into um, kind of theories of embodiment. The idea is that we have created this mind-body divide that does not exist. And the neuroscientific evidence about the connection between our brains and our bodies is overwhelming overwhelming and compelling in the undoing of this mind-body split that so mm. many of us have espoused. And so we think about our bodies as an object, that our bodies are an it that either yes. does or doesn't do what we want it to do yes. instead of thinking about our bodies as us. Mm. So there is a, there is a profound political implication. If we start saying things like I am my body, because it means that everything that anyone has ever done to our body, they have also done to us. Mm-hmm. And that means feeling the pain of racism and feeling the pain of homophobia and feeling mm-hmm. the pain of violence against our bodies or the way that we have been traumatized because of, because of how other people have used or misused our bodies. Mm-hmm. So saying I am my body means feeling the pain that our bodies carry. But it also comes with this beautiful gift of realizing that our bodies are good and that we are good and that all of the things that we have said about the other parts of us that are not body, like mind or spirit, mm. are actually applicable to the body too. Mm. So if we can, you know, I sometimes when I'm leading women's retreats or doing embodiment workshops or body image workshops, I ask the question, what's your relationship to yourself? And women will say, you know, compassionate or complicated or, you know, in process or I'm learning or it's more loving than it used to be. Mm. And then I ask the question, what's your relationship to your body? And women will say like hatred or Mm. shame or disgust. And it's so sad for me that those, we ask, answer those questions differently. Like where did we learn that the goodness and the love that we can find in how we talk and think to ourselves and how we believe about ourselves can't also be applied to all of us. Mm. So when we think about talking to our bodies, one of the, or kind of thinking about our bodies and implying, applying love and acceptance to our bodies, I like to sometimes think about that as is moving the body from an object to a subject. And this comes mm. through in lots of the, the philosophers who've studied 
uh, embodiment for, you know, decades past. Um, mm. French philosophers, um, all sorts of continental philosophers who've said we can no longer treat the body like an object because then we are cutting ourselves off from the fullness of life and from mm. the complexity and the goodness of the self. So we move from object to subject. And there are many, many people who, who use this kind of language. But think about if the body is the subject, if the body is a being, why don't I engender some sort of relational language to this being like hmm. she? So instead of talking about my body like an it, what happens if I talk about my body like a she? Hmm. What if I talk about my body like a, a we? Like me, I am in connection with myself. And it means it's harder to ignore the messages that our bodies are telling us That's because good. we would never say to another she or they or he or them, like, I can't believe the way, you know, I can't believe that's you right. wore that and how that skin hangs over the front of your jeans. Mm. <laughs> like we would, most of us would never say that. Of course. We think about our body as a her or a she, this living, breathing being. It sometimes is easier to, to start to relate in a loving and kind way because we're borrowing from the way that we relate to others and just applying it to ourselves. Mm. Um, even as you're saying that, I, I feel that internal switch. Okay. You're right. It is a mental, that's a bit of a mental exercise. It's true. Um, which yeah. I can see how if, if I were to regularly practice using those pronouns yes. and that sort of language, I think I could, I, I think that sort of thinking could, um, lead my feelings. I think my exactly. feelings might follow. Yes. That is really, um, profound idea. Hey guys, Jen here breaking into the show for a minute to tell you about a service our family has actually found to be a lifesaver. It's care.com. Uh, so care.com is such an easy and reliable way to find care for everyone in the family when and wherever you need it. Um, they have access to 8.6 million caregivers across 16 countries. So care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for care. So you are sure to find the local caregivers you need, including nannies, or housekeepers, sitters, senior care, dog walkers, whatever, full-time, part-time, anytime. Listen, Brandon and I used care.com for about five years when our kids were little and we needed a part-time nanny. Every nanny that care.com sent us was fabulous and wonderful and now a part of the fabric of our family. So care.com is giving our For the Love listeners a great deal. Um, care.com's basic membership is free, but if you go to care.com slash For the Love, you can save 30% on their premium membership, which gives you so many wonderful tools, background checks, reference checks, qualifications, certifications, when you're searching for a potential caregiver, absolutely worth it. So go to care.com slash for the love today to save 30%. Okay, back to our show. Body image is just, it's such a tough nut to crack. Um, right. yeah. I love that you're spending your, your energy on this and this is your academic space because it's, it's so complicated. The underlying mm. causes are so complicated. And, um, I, this 
for me, and I know this is also mm-hmm. true for a lot of women, food is this wonderful mechanism to numb. And it is. It does mm. deliver on the front end. It will. It, oh, absolutely. It does what I want it to do when I yes. want it to do that. You know, when we, um, I don't, I'm not sure why so many of us reach for that. Maybe we don't know how to feel hard things or we were never taught yeah. how or no one yeah. ever showed us how to hold complicated emotions and move through them in healthy ways. I wonder if just for a moment you could talk a little bit about emotional regulation and, and when we're feeling so overwhelmed that all we want to do is numb ourselves and food is such a, an easy reach there and it just delivers quickly. Um, it's an automatic, uh, what, what can we do to move through that in a different way, in a healthy way, in an integrated way? And truly, Jen, we could, again, another thing we could spend a whole lifetime talking through. Um, It is a complex system of emotions and social programming and behavioral reinforcement. It's, it's a socially acceptable way to manage distress. It's going to be a lot more socially acceptable to eat something at the end of the day than it is to, to use intravenous drugs. Truly. Great point. Like, and it functions in the exact same way in our brain. Yes. <laughs> our body evolved at a time and in a way, in such a way that we would get this reward from high sugar, high fat foods. And so we get a dopamine right. release and often serotonin as well into our bloodstream, into our body to say, you're doing a good thing. Mm. And just like anything that releases that much dopamine and that much serotonin, it's going to be easy to go back over and over and over again because it feels so good for our whole system. Mm. Before I say anything else, what I want to say is it's, there are many worse ways to manage distress. Truly. There are many, 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 many worse ways. But the reason why we harp on this one so much is because it is situated in a context where we have Uh, where we are steeped in diet culture and we have a very specific body ideal that has been reinforced through media over and over and over again, basically a disappearing female body, except for the parts that are highly sexualized. Then those are Uh, allowed to be big and not disappear. (laughs) Great point. The woman's body must disappear except for the parts that are uh, created into sexual objects for the pleasure Mm. of others. And so when we look at food and managing emotions by using food, part of the reason why there's so much shame is because women have often been told that their body at any size, except for the smallest and most invisible size, is bad. Hmm. So if we were doing anything else to manage distress, like taking a bath it feels so good going for a brisk walk, going for a run, but those don't have the same kind of effects on our body that our society has constructed as being shameful or damaging. Mm. We don't beat ourselves up about doing those things because they exist, you know, the bath, the run, the walk, those exist in a framework. We are told that those are good. That's right. So, Before I even talk about doing, you know, emotional regulation and doing something else instead, we have to remember that this is like, we live in a very toxic society, Mm -hmm. which has constructed a very unhealthy, unattainable ideal for the female body. And anything different than the ideal is considered shameful and bad. Mm, So I want to, I want to kind of 
pierce that lie right away. If you need to eat because that is the safest way for you to manage distress because you have been emotionally abused because you were neglected, there is no shame in that. Hmm. There is no shame in that. The second thing I'll say is that if you find that you don't know how to do anything else or you're numbing out or binge eating is kind of is is taking over and you're feeling like it's out of control and you're not making the choice, it's choosing for you, yeah. this kind of repetitive behavior, then it's a great idea to start becoming mindful. That's often the best place where we start. Um, I remember early on in eating disorder treatment before anyone in my treatment program said, okay, we need you to make changes to your behavior. All they said was, we just want you to notice and become aware of what's happening because so often the things that we do to emotionally regulate involve a kind of numbing out and dissociation. We lose awareness and we are not making the choices. And so to become aware of what's happening, to to notice it as it's happening is often the first step. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, it's often the first place to start. And then what we need to be able to do is perhaps pause and ask ourselves before we reach for the thing that maybe we're not like actually really hungry for, but it just tastes good (laughs) or we don't know how to be present and still when we're watching a movie or sitting down. And so we need something to distract us. And it's kind of like a, like a stimulation behavior to create some sort of distraction from the present moment. Then before you reach for the thing, I might ask you to notice what is it that I'm feeling right now? And just simply kind of interrupting the automatic process of like mindfully, mindlessly reaching for the bag of chips or whatever it is. And then maybe noticing like, oh, interesting. Every time I reach for the chocolate bar, every time I'm, I'm eating three, four, five servings of food when I'm actually not hungry anymore, when I slow down and ask myself, there's a sadness or a loneliness that's there. And so you might collect some data about specific kinds of things that pop up before you reach for food that you're not Mm. actually hungry for. And then what I might be kind of suggesting or urging you towards is exploring your stories growing up about that feeling. What were you told any time you were sad? Sometimes people were told when they're sad uh, growing up, like, don't be sad, it's weak, or don't be afraid, especially in evangelical context. Mm, that's right. Perfect love drives out fear. If that's you're right. not, if you're afraid, it means that you're not trusting God. So you exactly. can't be afraid. Yep. So the message we learned is if we feel fear, we have to shove it down in order to be acceptable to our tribe. That's right. And so when we shove it down, we never actually learn how to feel it. And it, there's a fear about fear of being shameful about not being good enough. So guess what mm-hmm. happens? You know, 20 years down the road, you feel fear. Well, you, you have no other strategies besides doing anything you can to try and make it go away. Mm. So it might mean looking back and saying to your, asking yourself, what were the stories that I heard about this emotion? And one of the things that is really important to acknowledge about emotion is that it's a, it's a socially and relationally learned process. It's not an intellectual skill to feel emotion. It's actually something you learn in connection with another person. So the same parts of our brain that hold the relational capacities also hold the affective or kind of sensing, um, intuiting about ourselves, knowing where we're at and reading our own body cues parts. And we learn through relationship with another person how to feel. So you can't actually read a book (laughs) and learn how to feel. You can't just decide, I'm going to 
name this. It actually takes having relational permission and guidance for someone to say to you, okay, this is what you do next. And this is what you do next. I'm going to stay with you until it's dissipated. That's good. Emotional regulation is just our, our fancy academic or theoretical word for saying that we know what we're feeling and we know what to do with what we're feeling or not feeling in a way that helps us navigate social situations, relational environments, work environments, um, kind of our, our life's desires in a way that's supportive for us to be well and whole. Hmm. So that can mean knowing um, when we're feeling low energy, low emotions, kind of a down feeling, if you will, how to bring that back up. Or if we're feeling too much, if we're feeling anxious or distressed, mm-hmm. knowing how to recognize that and what to do about it to bring it back down. Hmm. It's funny to hear you talk about it because it sounds simple. <laughs> and even in some ways, obvious, like yeah. slow down and check your feelings. Yeah. But I think the thing is, that alone is work that yeah. most of us would rather avoid because exactly. it's just easier to default to the thing. And again, like yeah. you said, food could be one thing, but that could be any number of things. Yeah. But True. that is a bit of work to um, yeah. to be mindful, to say, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to start cataloging what I'm noticing. and um, And yet it really is a path forward. I mean, mm-hmm. it, this isn't necessarily work that is so hard and out of reach that the average person cannot engage it. You know, that's, this is doable. It's totally doable. And in fact, I might say that it's a necessary for us to be whole and to move forward as a society and as a culture, because the research that we're having now, the research that's now coming out about psychopathology or mental health issues is that most mental health issues are primarily emotional regulation disorders, Mm. that there is an inability to know what to do when we're feeling big emotions or not enough emotions, or uh, we're not expressing them in ways that are supportive for us or for other people. And so if we could think of one thing that you could do to help yourself, truly it would be to learn how to feel feelings. Hmm. And the research about emotional regulation shows us that a kid's ability to emotionally regulate is more predictive of their academic success than IQ. That's interesting. So even when that's controlled for socioeconomic status, we know that regardless of where you come from, what your brain's level of ability is Uh cognitively, if you can emotionally regulate, you will be much more successful in school regardless of what your IQ is. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And of course, as I mean, looping back around to the top of the show, mm-hmm. this is indeed something we can model and pass on to our kids. Um, just knowing this, these are tools that we can yeah. put in our own hands and the hands of our kids yes. to be incredibly predictive of their future. This is a, yeah. it's big stuff here. Huge stuff. Um, it's so right now it's, it's the beginning of a new year. Yeah. And you know kind of how this goes in in mainstream culture. This is the time when a lot of people tune their attention toward um, improvement or wellness yeah. or health or all, all the things that we sort of want um, mm-hmm. f- out of this next sort of page, this next chapter. Uh, and it's it's a weird time for a lot of us because, of course, just yes. one minute ago, it's all these happy, warm Christmas commercials filled with families and cinnamon rolls, right? And, 
And then it's this like messaging whiplash um, because the cinnamon rolls are gone. It is just, it's kale, it's guilt. Every other commercial is weight loss. Every yeah. other one. It yeah. is a gym or it is a pill. Yeah. And, you know, it's this idea like, oh, people have you 20 pounds lighter by Valentine's Day. I mean, that those messages are everywhere. They're literally in every channel. And so... Um, and, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier is this really is the era that we're breathing. It mm-hmm. really is the culture that we have been raised in and, um, sort of it's been normalized for us. And so how would you suggest that we begin the challenging work, frankly, of, of shutting out so many of these toxic yeah. messages that are aimed at us f- with great effect. I mean, this yeah. is a billion dollar industry we're talking about yeah, here. So exactly. it's no joke. Yeah. Um, how do we learn to care for our bodies? Cause we do want to care for our bodies. Yeah. This is our, it's our body. It's our, she, it's our, her, yes, that's right. um, that's but right. not in a punishing way, but yes. more like as a gift, yes, more like as a absolutely. partner It's like a cherished, a member of who we are. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just love hearing you talk about it that way. I'm so hopeful that even just hearing this conversation might inspire the beginnings of some, the sparks of some compassion and some cherishing of the bodies for, for those who are listening. The first thing that I think about is the importance of media literacy. So we know from research that even in a world where we are inundated with toxic messages, Mm. that it is possible to be compassionate and loving of your body at any size. And one of the keys is media literacy. It's the ability to look at images and to see through the lies, to be able to see that there is an agenda here, that there is a, you know, a capitalist structure at place where people are making money off of us hating our bodies as women. That's right. Like it's important that we identify that that's happening. There are even really powerful uh, documentaries and um, the work of a woman named Jean Kilborn and a documentary called Killing Us Softly, where she looks at the images that are manipulated so that the people who are in the images that we are comparing ourselves to, that they don't even look like that because the images right. have been related so much that the people themselves who you know the image is capturing, um, it doesn't even resemble their original form. It's just craziness. So it is absolute insanity. And yet we're looking at those things and feeling badly about ourselves. Yeah. And no, like literally no person looks like that. Not even the person who, who the image was taken <laughs> of. So being able to right. see the media and understand the, you know, the socio-political context where there is an agenda, there is a capitalist and patriarchal agenda where That's women right. are kept hating their bodies as a tool for oppression. That's right. And a way to make money. Like we're laughing, we, but it is true. It's true. Absolutely, yep. it's true. And depending on how far along the feminist spectrum you go, some people will even articulate like this is the greatest strategy to keep women subservient because wow. if they hate their bodies, then they are not engaging in political action. Like one That's of my right. favorite questions to ask people is what would you have energy for hmm. if you spent less time hating your body, manipulating your appearance, right. focusing on what your body is or isn't doing and trying to make it different? What would you do with all of your brain power if you were not obsessing about meal planning and calorie counting Mm. and shaming yourself like there is a revolution in order here (laughs) there is like there is a whole army of people who have the capacity intellectually from a from a heart center place spiritually 
to engage in acts of justice Mm. and ending oppression of marginalized people groups. But we're sitting at home fussing about if the, you know, how our bat wings or how the, you know, the skin on the top of our jeans is looking and, and obsessing about what kind of products we can buy to make our body look different. Like truly there is a, there's a political piece to this, I believe. So the first is media literacy. The second I would say is that we need self-compassion, that we need Hmm. to say that our body is okay at any size, because as soon as we, and I think you can, you can believe that and start acting like it, or you could act like it and then you'll believe it later. Mm, Yeah. Either those things are connected, our actions and our beliefs. And because they're so interconnected, we can do one and it'll affect the other. But as soon as we have this kind of contingent self-worth where we say like, if this, then I'll be okay. We are setting ourselves up for a whole lifetime of feeling like we have to chase something to earn our enoughness. That's right. And so it'll just switch, switch out. It'll be if, you know, I weigh this much or if yeah. I didn't have this many wrinkles or if my mm-hmm. body looked that way and the, the target will keep moving and moving and moving. And we will always feel like we are waiting to change something to be mm-hmm. okay. And so I think what we say is yeah. that in the new year, instead of caring about the weight that we've gained, we say my, my new year's resolution is to be kind to myself now not to wait until my body is different, not to wait until X, Y, Z has happened to be happy with myself, but to say, I am completely enough and lovable. I am loved and lovable now, Hmm. now as I am. That's so good. Um, what a refreshing thing to hear. Mm -hmm. It's so different from every other, um, narrative aimed at women. And I really agree with you that it could, it could matter. I mean, but this it doesn't can make matter. anyone money. It doesn't make anyone That's money. a super <laughs> good point. There right? is no money in it. No gym um, memberships get uh, signed up for if we're like, I'm good, girl. I'm good. Right? Honestly, <laughs> I um, I don't know if you follow um, Jamila Jamil. I don't know if you know that, who yes, that is. I She's do. an actress do, on The do. Good Place. Yes. Um, and we had her on the show a few weeks ago. And she is just doing this amazing work right now about mm-hmm. a counter a counter narrative and she is calling it all out, all of it, all the celebrity culture, the endorsement culture, the crazy fad, unhealthy diet culture, the magazine airbrush culture. And, and this is her, she makes the same point. You know, there is, this is not a mystery. And what's interesting is a lot of those industries, um, their front facing, idea is that they love women. That's what they say. We love right. women. Right. We That's are right. for women. We're, we're showcasing women. We care for women. But the truth is they're making money on, on women. That's right. Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, this last question before we sort yes. of wrap it up together. Um, would we, and you mentioned this earlier, so I just wanted to touch back on it. When we listen to the world about, you know, what our body should look like, um, then at that point, our body no longer belongs to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is a scary place to live. Um, So I know that you're working on a new book called Embodiment. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this concept? And um, when did our, when, when did our brains get disconnected um, from our bodies? (laughs) Um, And we've Um, we've talked a little bit about it, but what can we do about it? 
Oh, yes. Jen, this is a really fun question to answer because it makes us see how long and how much work has been put into us feeling this way that we do. I I was talking with women about this again at, at an event that I was reading leading recently, and women were shocked to feel like, oh my goodness, it's not because I'm broken that I feel mm. this way. You mean there's been millennia of thought that have, has been put into me feeling great. bad about myself. So we actually see this split between mind and body start even as far back as Plato. Plato said the soul and the body are distinct from each other and That's the right. soul is good and the body is bad, right? And then we see That's our friend right. Paul and his Pauline theology pick this yeah. up and talk about the flesh is bad. That's so true. for people who grew up in the church there is an extra narrative to contend with, which is that, like we have been told that our flesh is where our sinfulness is. And even more so is women. Women have been told over and over oh. again, it's your body. Of your course. body is bad. It led everyone astray. It's yep. where lust is. That's right. So bad body is bad. And then we see even further Descartes, Descartes, Rene Descartes, mm-hmm. um, So philosophers say that the mind is closer to the soul. The mind can leave Mm. the body. The body is bad. Body is where pain is. Body is where lust is. Body is where desire is. And in that, there was also this kind of this gendered story too, where men were able to leave. This is a very like heteronormative um, story kind Mm -hmm. of historically, but men were able to leave the house and go to the ivory tower and think and do theology and women because of the cycles and the rhythms of the body and taking care of children had to stay with the daily tasks and the lived experience of the body. And so in addition to there being this story about mind being good and body being bad, women were associated more with the body and the needs and the desires and the lusts of the body. Hmm. And so there is a, there is a a patriarchal component to this. Um, but what's interesting about embodiment is it's a construct that comes out of continental philosophy, uh, within that, um, existentialism or phenomenology. And the idea is that maybe we are our bodies Hmm. and that as bodies that we can live with more dimensions of dimensions of existence, instead of just being in our thoughts, that we can be in our senses, that we can be in our connection to the earth and to the rhythms of the body, and we can feel goodness in the body. And we see with um, different theological ideas, this idea of transcendence in theology, which was about leaving the now, that God is far away and Mm. big and distinct and very unhuman. But in feminist theologies, in liberation theologies, we see the construction of God as being here and now in in the very present moment, as close as our breath, perhaps even our breath itself. So embodiment is this beautiful spiritual philosophical idea that says we're missing out on the fullness of life when we try and get away from the body, that there there is something that we learn about God, there is something we learn about beauty. There's something we learn about pleasure when we are in the body and that those things are not bad, that it's good, that it's really good. So I'm writing a a book right now for the popular audience about what embodiment is and how we can befriend and fall in love with our bodies again, including even if we've had a marginalized body, Mm. if we've experienced chronic pain, if we've been 
in trauma and our body has been the site of our trauma. Like I do not believe that that excludes us from experience goodness, experiencing goodness in the body. It just kind of makes me want to cry my eyes out. It's so, um, it's, we're so tired. We're all just so tired of this. And I mean, I am thinking back to what you said a minute ago, just, I can't even put a number on how much, how many minutes and hours and days would be added back into all of our lives if yeah. we just freed up the mental space yeah, from absolutely. all this self-loathing and all that. It's such a it's such a preoccupation. It takes so much yeah. time. It's like a it's a it's like a full halftime job. Yeah, um, chasing all these ideas and fads around, and so I just um, mm. I believe in this, and I mm. I want this so much for my girls. Oh, you know, just I want it girls. for them too. I, yeah. I have an eighteen year old. I have a twelve year old. You know, I would just I love the idea of sending them into adulthood, whole yes. and integrated, yeah. and just proud of their bodies and their souls and their minds mm-hmm. and all of that package all together. It. And That's it's right. just good. I just want to, I want to just commend you and you. tell you, just keep going. This is, we mm-hmm. do not have enough teachers in this area. Mm-hmm. We do not, we certainly do not have enough mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I find this discussion as important as anything I can think of that I've had lately. This is really, really good. So listen, um, in this, in this series, we are yeah. wrapping up talking to every guest, and we're asking just kind of three quick questions, and really whatever pops to mind. Great. Um, okay. I think our idea of this series, which is called Good Change, is that we hate the sort of sell the whole farm idea to, right. to right. self-love, right? Like just, you're going to have to start from scratch, or you're going to have to clear the slate and start over, or you need to change everything about yourself and then you'll be happy. You know, I just think that is such a toxic, unhealthy approach. And so I like this approach, this, Mm. like, this is your body that you have Mm. been given. Let's love it. Let's live right right inside of it and love it. So to that, to that sort of end, Mm -hmm. what's the best small change, just a little tiny toggle that you've ever made in your life? Oh, oh, ever. Oh my, oh my goodness. Okay. Just small change. And it like deeply impacted your trajectory. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I could talk for hours about this cause I feel like there have been so many, but the one that comes top of mind right now is to dance. And this is not like in a, n- not in a class, not, mm. um, not for anyone, not choreographed, like music on naked in my house <laughs> alone, <laughs> moving in a way that oh. feels good. Because what we know from embodiment is that you can't experience, you can't believe goodness about your body if you haven't experienced goodness of your body. So I've been creating these experiences of freedom and joy in kind of movement. And so I, uh, when no one's home, I dance naked to blues music. (laughs) Literally the best answer this podcast has ever heard. Um, and, and what about this one? What's one positive thing, if you do have one, mm. that you just do every day just to yeah. feel good? Yeah. I would say, um, I mean, lots of little things like I've been trying to get to bed earlier, but truly probably the most impactful one is to trust my body. So if my body says something, if she says something like, mm. you're tired, I listen. Mm. She says, you're hungry, I listen. She says, this doesn't feel safe, I listen. That's she good. says, I'm in pain, I listen. I love that because she's yeah. a good partner. It's good. She's been with you every day that you've lived on this earth. You never got anywhere without her. 
That's right. Never been a single place without her. <laughs> so last one. This is a Barbara yeah. Brown Taylor question that we oh. love and ask every single okay. guest. Um, what's saving your life right now? Okay. Well, because it's, it's top of mind, I would say, um, one of these, these women's retreats I'm doing, Lisa Gunger and I, uh, mm-hmm. Lisa is my, is married to Michael Gunger, who's also yep. on the liturgist podcast, but we have started these women's embodiment retreats that are focused on kind of the sacredness of the body and the goodness of, of femininity. Um, uh, and not in a traditional sense of like right. doing pretty sure. things, but really like kind of an earthy connection to, to God, to each other. And to create a new story about being a woman in this world, one that undoes shame and isolation and competition. And we just had we just had another one in Ojai in California and it wrecked me. Did it? It, just, it wrecked me. Jen, mm. these women are powerful beyond measure. And yes. when we like I always like to say to people, we didn't come up with the story that we're bad in isolation. Yes. And we're not gonna tell a new story in isolation either. Mm. We need each other to tell a new story. We need each other to remind ourselves of the truth about the fact that we are good and we are loved and we are full of light and we are kind of we have divine in mm. us. And and so I just got back from one of these streets and my heart was bursting and my body was vibrating and I just felt like hmm. It was all going to be okay. <laughs> oh, what a great answer. So will you just tell my listeners, yes. where can they find you? Because oh, I yeah. already know right now that some of my people are listening going, I need to go to that retreat. I yes. need to get all the way to wherever the next one is. Um, <laughs> where can they find you, your books, oh, everything? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so Lisa and I post about the retreats on Instagram, on Twitter. So you can follow me on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride is my handle on Twitter, uh, Hillary L. McBride. You can find information about me and my writing and upcoming speaking engagements on my website, hillarylmcbride.com. And my first name is two L's. Um, and I usually post about stuff on there. You can listen to me on the Liturgist podcast and I do custom meditations for the Liturgist patrons. So if you sign up to be a patron every few weeks, I do a custom meditation so people can hear a little bit of that. And I often do embodiment related ones to help us heal Mm. our relationships with our bodies. And then lastly, I have a podcast with CBC, which is Canada's NPR, and um, it's about therapy. And so some of my clients have given me permission to stick mics in our sessions Mm. and we've used pseudonyms, but uh, to protect their identity, but it's about demystifying mental health and treatment and therapy. And instead of pat answers and you know, bite-sized self-help. It's seeing what the journey of healing really looks like and walking beside people to feel less alone. Uh, And that's Mm. a podcast called Other People's Problems. Good work, sister. Good, good, good work. Um, Thank you for everything you said today. I'm thankful that I got to introduce my my podcast community to you. The ones that didn't know you are so happy now that they do. Um, And so... Please keep teaching us and please keep mm-hmm. leading us. And um, we are listening. And mm-hmm. I have great hope, um, not just for our daughter's generation, but also for ours, that yes. this is within reach. And right. I'm so grateful that you are reaching and showing the rest of us how to do it too. So thanks for wow. being on today. Oh, my greatest pleasure. Thank you so much Absolutely. for all the work you're doing. Oh, just sing your praises all day long. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Hillary. Bye, Jen. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. I, um, I'm just going to be thinking on this one for a long time. 
um, grateful to women like Hillary who are leading us like this and who are not buying into just the shame-based body culture that you and I have literally lived in since the day we were born. Um, what a new and wonderful story to tell. And it, I know you're going to want to hear more from Hillary. And so just as a reminder, everything we talked about today, I will have linked over at jinhatmaker.com underneath the podcast tab um, with this particular um, episode. Uh, Amanda will have the whole page built out for you. Every link, every website, all of Hillary's social handles, um, every bit of information on the internet about Hillary, we will have at your disposal. And so um, do go over there for more. If you want to hear more about her workshops that she runs, I mean, what a wonderful opportunity. Anyhow, um, we are grateful to you listeners. Um, my team and I love you and we, um, care so much about you. So Amanda and Laura and I say, thank you so much for listening week in and week out. Thank you for being such a powerful and robust community. You download and you listen and you share it and you review it and you rate it. And just thank you for all that you guys. And so, um, it's our pleasure and our honor to continue to serve you. Um, and there's so much more in this series, you guys, I'm telling you, I said it at the top of the hour, but, uh, every interview in this series just has lit something in me. It's just a little, it's just stoked a flame. And I, um, I hope you feel the same way and we have more to come. So come back next week as we continue for the love of good change and can't wait to bring you more. Have a great week. You guys see you next time. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating. If you like it from the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.